Good morning, Redwood Christian Church family. It's good to see you today. I know in other regions of our state, people may not be having church to, so, because of the weather. So I am happy that we live in a place where it is the climate and we're able to have church together. So praise God for that. Um, I was thinking about this before we get in. Uh, I, everybody has a favorite Bible character, right? And as you grow older, you get more honest with your favorite Bible character, right? My favorite Bible character happens to be the, the guy we're going to talk about today, and his name is Peter, right? Here's, here's this guy who's a fisherman. So, you know, you think about he's not the most intellectual of the group. And Peter is definitely what we would call, in one sense of the term, he's definitely bold, right? And by the way, not that being a fisherman this means you're non-intellectual. But so some of you are like waiting there, no, because I certainly am not a good angler. I can't catch fish to save my life. But I think about Peter in all of the three, three and a half years that he spent with Jesus. And boldness is certainly something that maybe we would attribute to Peter. He was bold. He spoke first, right? He's also the first one that Jesus told him to get behind him because he was acting as the devil. He was the first one to say, Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the risen Lord. He's all of these different things. He's also the first one who, even though went through all this effort, took out a sword and instead of even striking at one of the, the guards of the Jews, he struck at a servant. And even then, he wasn't good, right? He misses, hits his ear. Some people are like, well, maybe he was sending a warning. I don't think so. Peter is bold in the sense of being filled with arrogance and pride and all these other things that sometimes so often can resonate with us, especially us guys, right? He thinks that if he just does this and he picks it up in his own effort, that it will be accomplished. Never, Lord, I won't let anybody take you from us. All this boldness, all this vigor that he has, right? All of this, this strength that he seems to boast upon. All of this three and a half years. And we never get the kind of narrative moment from Jesus if Jesus ever just hung his head and said, Peter, you don't get it. And it wouldn't be Peter just alone, right? If you're, if you're familiar with the, the Gospels and, and everything, none of the disciples got it. Even after... Jesus resurrects from the grave and then he's about to ascend. You know, if you're reading along and, and we're going through this and this, this birth of this new kingdom, right? It says, is it now the time that you are going to reestablish the kingdom of the Jews? So even, even after the resurrection, after Jesus has spent time with them and, and doing all this, they still don't get it. And then I think about the scene at, at, by the sea and, and, you know, Jesus has reappeared to them once again after he's got fish cooking on the shore and in my head, I'm wondering if Peter's kind of just hanging out off in the fringe because of what had happened the morning of Jesus' crucifixion. And Peter really just did so much to bolster himself, to think that he was going to be this, this mighty person in this new kingdom that Jesus was establishing, only to fulfill the very prophecy Jesus said of him that you would deny me this morning three times. 
And so I wonder if Peter just sat off on the side, right? And was like, Jesus. You know, I remember the, being the teacher or the student in school who didn't have the answer to the question that was being asked of the class. Don't look at me. If I just keep my head down and I just look, look away from Jesus, he won't pay attention. Only to find that, that sweet, sweet moment recorded in the Gospels where Jesus goes to Peter. Basically saying that it called him out. Doesn't say who was with him, if it was with everybody else. Or he just called him out and says, Peter, do you love me? Three times, three different ways, three different answers, same thing. Peter, do you love me? And then lastly, really what Jesus says is, Peter, do you love me more than these? Motioning to the other apostles who are around him. And Peter, broken in spirit, says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And the whole time, Jesus mentions, you know, shepherding terms to Peter. And, and then Jesus ascends, and then we just come to this place where, at the beginning of Acts chapter 2, these guys are all together in the upper room, the same place where the Last Supper had happened. And you wonder if anybody ties those moments to objects in the room, kind of, and Peter was just looking at the table, remembering that night. And, and maybe not, maybe we don't know how that all worked, right? And that's okay, we don't have to. And then a mighty rushing wind came and tongues of Forked tongues of fire came and rested upon them. They began speaking in other languages and, and all manner of craziness happened in this, this, this place that we don't like to talk about. Divided tongues of fire, all of this going on. And just to be in that room, I don't know about you, I've always loved the idea of to experience, to be a fly on the wall in the midst of all this that was going on. And surely Peter was bold. He was called Peter, Petros, the rock, on whom Jesus had intended to build his church. And, and every guy in the room, if you got told that, you would be a little prideful too. You would deal with it, right? <laughs> he said he's going to build the church upon me. But not really understanding what he meant by it all. And clearly missing the whole picture. And then this massive moment happens and, and they begin speaking in languages of other people and different things like that that are going on. And, and all these people are hearing because it's during Pentecost and so people had converged upon Jerusalem like normal. All the different Jewish festivals and holidays and temple holidays and so people converged upon Jerusalem and there was people from all over the, the Roman world who had come there for one reason or another. And some people were in awe of what they were hearing, while others, it says in Acts 2.13, but others mocking said, they are filled with new wine. And last week I brought up the, the, the concept of being bold for Christ. But I don't want to be bold like Peter was pre-Pentecost, Right? And every preacher that I know, they, they wish they would have a sermon. They look at Acts chapter 2 and they go, you know, that would be awesome. And I don't know how we would even baptize. There's no way we could baptize 3,000 people in one day in just this baptistry, right? We'd stay here for a whole week, though. That'd be great. 
just continuing to baptize people. It would be awesome to be part of a sermon that had that much effectiveness. Amen? Anybody who's ever preached would say that. Like, if I could just say one sermon, and that many people could be drawn into the Lord, baptized in these waters, if that could happen, that would be amazing. And we all say amen. We all turn on a Billy Graham evangelism thing or some other thing and we see how many people bow their heads raise their hands and lift up the lord's the sinner's prayer thing and all this other stuff but never like this never what we're about to read i mean fca this last year i think over 600 or how many do you remember amber I don't remember. There's a bunch of baptisms of fellowships that Christian athletes did. There's, there's baptisms all over. I think uh, Upward, um, up, not Upward Church, but churches up north, our sister churches that are across Oregon, they had seven, eight, nine baptisms on, on New Year's Day or on Christmas Eve. Awesome stuff, but not 3,000. And, and you wonder, it's like, man, maybe that speaker was really good. Maybe the preacher just knew exactly how to deliver it. And mind you, that's not going to be me, because I'm not that guy. But I love seeing the, the picture of Peter's restoration and bringing back into relationship with Christ in a way. That having heard the mockers, it begins in saying that Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Said, men of Judea, and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you. And give ear to my words, for these people are not drunk as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. Because what's, what's about to be shown here is a very simple sermon with profound effectiveness. In verse 17, he says, And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. Verse 19 says, And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord come, comes, the great and magnificent day, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Peter comes in a different way. This is the same Peter, by the way, who had just previously hid, denied being associated with Jesus at all costs to save his own neck, Right? This same Peter said, never, Lord, will you be taken from me. He was called to be, get behind me, Satan. All of these things, all the, the arrogance and boldness of Peter, right, is now transformed. All of that's gone. And I don't see Peter in here, and even the, the language here doesn't give that Peter started slapping a pulpit and banging a Bible and saying, these guys aren't drunk. But rather, maybe calmly, he's saying, guys, these aren't drunk. It's only the third hour of the day. 
But I want to remind you what the prophet Joel said. And I wonder if in any moment Peter in his own mind is like, I can't believe what I'm doing here. But something's changed inside of Peter that he goes from being somewhat of a coward to now having real boldness. From, from not because I want to be in this position of authority inside of Christ's kingdom, but because of what Christ has done, let me declare to you, O men of Judea and other nations who have gathered here. We don't know what the target audience of that day was. Maybe it was 15,000 people or something like that. But we know the results of the sermon, results of what happened upon that day were magnificent. And Peter begins by going through the, what the prophet Joel said, that these things would take place. Old men would have dreams. Young men would have visions. Men and women will prophesy some more like heavy metal stuff like smoke and fire and blood and you know, and, and the moon will turn, there'll be darkness upon the earth, there'll be earthquakes, there'll be all these signs. And you wonder what Peter's doing, because some people get way convoluted and they start talking about the end times. Peter isn't doing that. Peter's using this as evidence of what has already transpired. And that's what's amazing. Peter uses all this as evidence, and he's talking to people who had been there. They had been in Jerusalem. It's like, you remember when all of this took place? This is what the prophet Joel said. And he continues on. He talks about this great and mighty day of the Lord. I mean, some of these events, I'm not going to go there today, but or actually I will. I'll go there. Matthew 27, 51 through 53. It's not on the screen, so you have to bear with me here. And when Jesus died, it comes and says this in verse 51, And behold, the curtains of the temple were torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his uh, resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. Just real short right there. You don't think that all of that was on the mind of the people who were there at Pentecost hearing what was going on? Maybe save for the mockers. You think the mockers were just having to ignore the fact that they remember those events? They remember conveniently the sky turning dark? That maybe when the sky was dark, the moon somehow turned red? They remember an earthquake, the, the, temp, the foundations of the temple possibly cracking, the, the reports of the veil splitting from the top to the bottom, and all those things wouldn't fresh be on the mind of those who experienced it? You ignore all that, just go look what happened on 9-11 in 2001. How long did that stay on our minds? Certainly longer than 45 days later. Seeing the results of those things constantly be put in our face, it would be on the mind of everyone here. Peter doesn't practice this amazing sermon. He doesn't come with plausible sounding arguments. He doesn't come with anything. He very much comes like we read that Paul did and he wrote when he came to the Corinthians. He came to know what? Nothing except for Jesus Christ and him crucified. Peter, in a sense, here is doing the exact same thing. But now it's in boldness. Who in here would be comfortable standing before 3,000 plus men or people? 
Anybody ready just to start getting up? Do we think that Peter was sitting over here in a chair, and I'm not going to try and find one, and he was just sitting over there in a chair, and he's like, you know, in a couple of days, I'm going to need to be prepared to give a sermon. He pulled out his Greek New Testament, which didn't exist at that time. He pulled out his, his, uh, his Old Testament. He pulled out his Septuagint from his cloak, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, right? He, and he's sitting there, he's just pouring over all these things. No, Peter was just ready. He was ready to give an answer to the mockers who were saying that these people were drunk. Now, Peter's not angry at these mockers. He's not anything. He's like, no, let me tell you of what has transpired. Let me tell you what has happened to these men, these people who have become part of something, who now are kingdom citizens, people who belong to something that the gates of hell will not overtake. Let me show you. Verse 22, he continues to say, Men of Israel, hear these words. Which is a bold statement in and of itself. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, you yourself know. Jesus, or Peter rather, is picking on the fact that this crowd was evidenced of what Jesus had done. Signs, wonders, things that had been accomplished by God through Jesus were evidenced by those in the crowd. Peter knows this. And now he's bold enough to say it. He's leaving it all up to God for any result that might come after this, but he's bold enough to say it. He says, he continues in verse 23, This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, right? You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. And now he's going to go to his second Old Testament proof text. For David, verse 25, says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I might not, may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. And Peter continuing to speak here, he says in verse 29, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the, our, our, the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, knowing that God had... Uh, God had said with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne. He foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. Again, Peter is continuing to preach not out of intellect or eloquence, not with cleverness. He's just pointing out what Scripture has already said. 
to what all of these people in Jerusalem would have already been well aware of. They would have read through what David had written. They would have read the words of the prophet Joel or heard them in the synagogue or spoken by one of the priests or the Pharisees, the Sadducees, maybe less the Sadducees on that part because they didn't believe in resurrection, right? But this would have all been common knowledge to these Jewish people who were living in this day and in near shot of remembering what had already happened. I feel like I'm almost giving an Easter sermon just, you know, 78 days early. By the way, it's 78 days till Easter. There's your plug. Start praying for your lost friends. Be great to baptize them on Easter Sunday, wouldn't it? Be great to baptize them at any point. But that just continues, and he continues to pull this text. And Peter doesn't let him go. He just continues to pour in. It says in verse 32, this Jesus God raised up, right? And not raised up in the sense of like, yeah, you heard that it was raised. He says, and that we, talking about him and his, his brothers, right? The other apostles says, we are all witnesses and maybe even referencing to the crowd because Jesus appeared to many. At one time, he appeared to 500 individuals at one time. You don't think that one of those 500 or a couple of those 500 are in that crowd? You remember when he appeared. By the way, you remember when your dead old grandpa was walking the streets? You don't remember all of that had taken place and all the magnificent things you saw? You remember, we're attesting to you that Jesus Christ was not held by death before, because death could not hold him. And he walked among you. You saw it. You saw what he did even before the resurrection. You saw the miracles that he performed. The feeding of 5,000. The, the clearing out of the temple. All the things that Jesus did, you are witness to. therefore being exalted verse 33 at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit he has poured out that that you yourselves are seeing and hearing I love here that Peter doesn't take what some of the charismaniacs do and he's putting the onus where it belongs God did this not us. This isn't about being drunk. And it certainly isn't being drunk in the spirit or any of these other silly things. This is God working through the power of the Holy Spirit. For David did not ascend into, heaven, into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies my footstool. And let the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Notice there's no fluff there. I love that Peter says that, by the way. This Jesus that we're talking about, by the way, that's attested to by what's written down in the scriptures, you crucified. Peter would obviously include himself in that, that I'm part of that, that you're part of that, that we're all part of that, that he needed to die, that he desired to be placed as sacrifice for many, for us, because we could not atone of our own sins. 
And this is bold, right? This is a Peter who, like I had said so well, I think that that he had already done everything to say that he denied Christ and was allowed back in. He literally denied him, not once, not twice, but three times. He denied Christ and was brought back in. Peter, do you love me? And now Peter, in the love that he has for Jesus, in the desire to follow Jesus, he stands and makes himself present and speaks clearly that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that he has been resurrected from the dead. Even the evidences, these were some fun evidence, by the way. I think we got it up here um, twice. Or I'm going to read the one that I have. I have twice from a guy named Julius Africanus, right? And the first one here, it says, On the whole world there pressed a most fearful darkness, and the rocks were rent by an earthquake, and many places in Judea and other districts were thrown down. This is darkness Thallus, in the third book of his history, calls as appears to me without reason an eclipse of the sun. For the Hebrews celebrate the Passover on the 14th day according to the moon. And the passion of our Savior falls on the day before the Passover. But an eclipse of the sun takes place only when the moon comes under the sun. And it cannot happen at any other time but in the interval between the first day of the new moon and the last of the old. That is at their junction. How then should an eclipse be supposed to happen when the moon is almost diametrically opposite the sun? Let opinion pass, however. Let it carry the majority with it. And let this portent of the world be deemed an eclipse of the sun, like others a portent only to the eye. Felgon records that in the time of Tiberius Caesar, at full moon, there was a full eclipse of the sun from the sixth hour to the ninth, manifestly that one of which we speak, but what has an eclipse in common with an earthquake, the rending of rocks and the resurrection of the dead? And so great a perturbation, which I mispronounced, sorry, throughout the universe. Surely no such event has, as this is recorded for a long period. Felgon, who was a Greek historian, said this, In the fourth year of the 202nd, 202nd Olympiad, or i.e. AD 33, there was an, the greatest eclipse of the sun, and that it became night in the sixth hour of the day, i.e. about noon, so that stars even appeared in the heavens, There was a great earthquake in Bithynia, and many things were overturned. These were Greek, well, Felgon for sure, a Greek historian who lived much later, recording things that had happened historically. Do you think that when I say that these things are evidenced, if Peter is just simply pointing out the evidences of things that are? And it's funny how history can be lost upon those who don't learn from history. If we read even the text and what we see here, Peter is mentioning things that were well attributed to by by other skeptic or other even people who were not necessarily in believers in Christ. Tiberius Caesar himself attributed an eclipse of the sun at the same hour upon which the Bible says that there was an eclipse of the sun. 
that the dead had raised, that an earthquake had happened, and the rocks had split. And Peter is just attesting to the things that he has witnessed, that he has evidenced. We all, we all sit there and think that Peter must have had this massive intellect and these different things, but I, I don't think that to be the case. I think that oftentimes that we struggle in knowing how we're supposed to reach the lost, amen? As if we're supposed to come up and concoct some massive plan, some massive ability to just go and say, hey, if you just say these things, if I just convince you, if I just debate with you a little bit, or if I just do these things, that you will come to know Jesus Christ. But what I find amazing about it is Peter takes this opportunity and he doesn't have any of that to back himself up with. He doesn't pull out his Logos Bible app. He doesn't have his 10-page sermon with his seven points or anything like that. He doesn't have a stage, a microphone, or anything. He just witnesses and attests to what he has seen. He was an eyewitness to these things, and he's just calling out the fact that many of them are eyewitnesses as well. And we wonder how we're supposed to reach our lost neighbor, our lost, our lost sibling, our lost coworker. Maybe it isn't about you having the perfect answer, but about you carrying the perfect Jesus. Maybe it isn't about you saying, oh, I'm so good at Greek, or I'm so good at Hebrew, or I'm so good at understanding the cultural context of why Paul wrote to the first Corinthians and the way that he wrote his letter to the first Corinthians or the Thessalonians or whoever else. But it's about you being Christ in a lost and dying world. Maybe that's what's happened to Peter. See, I know that each and every single one of you take invitations and invite people to church. Or I hope you do. But I wonder how many of us will get out of our own way to go and be the church. How many of us are going to go show Christ to our neighbor? Certainly invite them to come to church. I hope for the next couple of, the next two months roughly, right? Not, yeah, a little over two months. For the next two months that you will be inviting people to come to Easter, that you will be inviting people to come and hear about our resurrected Lord and Savior. But why wait until then? Why not go and have coffee with your neighbor? Why not start right now praying for the people in your life who don't have a relationship with Jesus? Jesus prayed so much that even in John 17, right, he, he prays a prayer, and he not only in that prayer is he praying for those who are with him currently, but he says that those, he prays for those who will come to believe through the power of their testimony. And isn't it fascinating that we're talking about testify? That it takes a level of boldness that isn't yours. It rests in you, but it's not yours because it's not your testimony. It's not your words that you're attributing to. It's God. It's what Jesus did, that he came. He looked at the dismal state of this, this planet that we live upon, and he says, I love them so much that I will come and die for them. That the grave won't be able to hold me down and hold me back. That if you would go and be the church, right? 
that great commission that he gives to the church. Go therefore unto all the earth, creating disciples, baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you, commanded you or taught you. That it's not about coming in here in this place and sitting in a seat and being warm and then going out to lunch and then that was, that's where church stopped. That tomorrow when you go to work or you go to school or whatever it is, that that's where church stopped. Church stopped on Sunday at about 11 o'clock or whatever time, 11 o'clock roughly, and that's it. You are the church. You are the kingdom of God sent into the lost and dying world. And you are to carry that banner into the lost and dying world. That we gather together, that we, we could come together, and this is kind of the mission briefing, right? Or you could say this is the mission debrief from the last week. But you come into a mission briefing for the only purpose of being briefed and then sent back out. So brothers and sisters, that's what you're here for, is to be briefed. You're to be briefed on what the mission is. What's the mission, church? Seek and save the lost. That's about the succinct way that you can say it. That's the mission. Go do it. Bring them here. Tell them about it. Go and tell. Come and see. All these things that we, we exist to do to see the lost come to a saving relationship with Jesus. And it's not just about a track. It's not about some book that you can hand somebody. It's about you creating relationships with people, being interruptible, letting your life get messed up because of what God is putting there. Go and have lunch with somebody. Do something. Because do you believe that the Son of God, Emmanuel, meaning God with us, the incarnate God in the flesh, came and died for your sins? If you believe in that, you should want everybody around you to know the same thing. So maybe this week as you go out, I'm jumping ahead of myself here. <laughs> Some of you are like, please, maybe. <laughs> and the reason I say all this, guys, and you've heard these quotes before, right, is, is Jesus is the most non-neutral person in history. I love how C.S. Lewis put this in two different ways. He said, Jesus is liar, lunatic, or Lord. He cannot be multiple things. He can only be one of those things. He also said later, Christianity is a statement which, if false, is of no importance. And if true, is of infinite importance. The one thing it cannot be is moderately important. And you see, brothers and sisters, this is where I see that Peter's boldness was. Peter, who lived far before C.S. Lewis, right, saw it in such a way that when he heard the mockers, when he heard the people, he's like, I must declare to them what has happened. And it came about in this way, it says in verse 37, to finish up the text, it says, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. When they heard what? You yourselves crucified him. And said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For this promise is for you, and for your children, and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. 
And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. See, you must answer the question, brothers and sisters. So what about us as our worship team comes forward? You must answer this question that Jesus had levied to his apostles beforehand. Who do you say that Jesus is? Is he a liar? Is he a lunatic? Or is he your Lord? If Jesus is your Lord, for the believer, go and be like Peter. Again, this isn't saying that you're going to go out and have this massive sermon and 3,000 souls are going to be baptized that day. If, if, if so, awesome, right? That's great. We need a bigger sanctuary. But be like Peter. Be bold in the face of opposition. Declare the truth in love to the lost in your life. You don't got to come to him with all the evidences. You don't got to come to him and speak about Felgon or Julius Africanus. Tell him what Jesus has done in your life. Of the forgiveness that you've experienced from the sins that you've committed. Be honest. Be transparent. Be vulnerable. Brothers and sisters, this world needs vulnerability. It needs people to talk about what Jesus has done for them. Not with debating and all these other things. If you're in here today and, and I'm asking you the question as I ask those who believe, if you don't believe, who is Jesus to you? As Lewis' question begs, Jesus cannot be anything but those three things, liar, lunatic, or Lord. If you accept that Jesus is your Lord and you, like those who are listening to Peter, are pricked at the heart, repent and be baptized, all of you, for the forgiveness of your sins and to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Let me pray. God, we just come before you. I pray that each and every person in this room today and those who are listening online would be bold. Not because of themselves, for that kind of boldness leads to nothing. But God, I pray that we would be bold in the face of a dark and dying world to declare the love of your son, Jesus Christ, and what he did for us at the cross. God, that we'd be actively praying for those in our, in our community, those in our, in our direct, immediate contacts, that they would come to know Jesus as we have come to know Jesus. God, I pray for those who may be listening, who are maybe in this place who don't have a relationship with your son. God, I pray that they would know how much you love them, you came and lived life perfectly on earth, died upon the cross for their sins, that if they'd be baptized, repent and be baptized, God, that they would know an eternal life with you. It's in Jesus' name I pray.